Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's January 9th. It's a new episode. And this week, I'm going to talk about some things that are in the news, some things that I have some personal experience with. And uh, this past week, I stopped doing my weekly radio hit for WOR Radio in New York City. And I'm going to talk, that's sort of a, a stepping off point. I'm going to talk a little bit about my radio career, why I got into it, why I ended it, and the, the highs and lows of it. I think it's um, it's somewhat interesting, or at least it is to me. And you're stuck here. At least I hope you think that you're stuck here when you're listening to this podcast, that you can't turn it off. Now, some of the things in the week uh, that really just, I hate to talk about, but I suppose I really should is the whole uh, Kevin McCarthy becoming the the Speaker of the House over the weekend on his 15th attempt. I just found this like so sickening that I, I, I I couldn't watch, but I also couldn't look away. He finally won on the 15th vote, and now he's the House Majority Leader. And I, frankly, I never even knew the guy existed before this whole uh, issue with him trying to become the majority leader because he never really did anything before. You know, he was a minority leader, I suppose, when the Republicans were not in power. And he just didn't really exist. He just was another useless, worthless, quiet, nothing. But when he wanted that job with all those perks that I'm sure that come with it, boy, suddenly he became very, very forceful. And it took him 15 times, I suppose, because there are some congressmen and some congresswomen on the Republican side who were utterly repulsed by him. There was only 20. I, I felt that it should have been closer to 200. As I said, he's a D.C. swamp creature and never really fought for anything except for this job. He's aligned with Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican uh, Senate leader, who sold the country out completely with the $1.7 trillion spending bill, which was passed before Republicans had the majority in Congress this month. I mean, why pass it when Republicans are not in charge unless you're working with Democrats, which is exactly what Mitch McConnell uh, was. And that's uh, one of Kevin McCarthy's main supporters is Mitch McConnell. And nine Republicans in the House voted for that $1.7 trillion ridiculous spending bill. And it happened under McCarthy's watch in December. Did you notice that every single Democrat in this election over the weekend or leading up to the weekend voted for Hakeem Jeffries in the vote for the House Majority Leader? Every single Democrat for all 15 of the votes. There was no dissension at all. Zero. Yet Kevin McCarthy, who lives with Frank Luntz, the pathetic, swampy pollster who's often on Fox News with that bad wig, these are two 60-year-old men who live together. Kevin McCarthy can't control Republicans in Congress. And, you know, with all respect, you live with Frank Luntz. Get out of the closet. It's time. It's 2023. It's okay. Anyway. McCarthy is supported by Trump, who's utterly useless and, and will guarantee a Democratic win for president in 2024. Is this the shit that we want? The same tired, losing shit? Of course not. The Republican Party blew the 2022 midterm elections, despite inflation being at deca- decades high numbers. The economy is in the toilet. The southern border is wide open. Crime is at an all-time high. 
Joe Biden is 100 years old and wildly unpopular. Voter fraud and ballot harvesting are out of control and was never stopped during the four years that the Republicans controlled the House, including when the Republicans controlled the White House, the Senate, and the Congress at the beginning of Trump's term. And yet still the Republicans got hammered this past November in the midterms. If there ever was a time for change, now is the time. It's after the humiliation in November, you'd think that that would be enough, which is why we need a candidate for president, the new one in Ron DeSantis, a guy who is not swamp, uh, a guy who is different, is new, has new ideas. We need a new leader in Congress, a new leader in the Senate, a new chairman of the Republican Party. Instead, after the utter disaster of November 2022, the midterm elections, after the utter disaster of 2020, when Trump lost to this lying corpse, Joe Biden, the Republicans still think it's a great idea to have the same losers in all the same positions as before. I mean, does that even make any sense at all? This is the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. At some point, you have to not be an idiot. And if you want to keep losing with the same garbage leadership, listen, have at it. But keep me out of it. I want no part of it. I don't care. Elections have consequences. We know this. So you really can't afford to screw too many of these up. Look at Florida now. It's a model of how to handle COVID, how to handle woke leftists, how to handle a weak economy. There's a reason that people from blue states are flocking to Florida. This is a state that's led by a guy who, during his military career, was awarded the Bronze Star Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, and the Iraq Campaign Medal. He attended Yale, Harvard Law School, without having a rich father who paid his way through, like Trump did with the University of Pennsylvania. DeSantis won the governor's race in 2018 by 30,000 votes with over 8 million casts. Think about how razor thin that margin was. 30,000 out of 8 million. Andrew Gillum, his uh, far left opponent, ended up in a cheap motel naked with a male prostitute, unconscious on the floor, surrounded by drugs and his own vomit. There's pictures if you want to see it on the internet. Then he went to rehab. That's what Florida would be now if DeSantis didn't get those 30,000 votes. Elections have consequences. Four years after that election, with DeSantis cleaning up Florida and getting rid of the far-left woke bullshit that was taking over the state, DeSantis ran for re-election. And this time, with, again, the same 8 million or so votes cast, he won by 1.5 million. Not 30,000, 1.5 million. Imagine if that crackhead... Andrew Gillum had won in 2018. Utter disaster. We can't allow the same disaster to happen in 2024. It's bad enough that we have Joe Biden now, a guy who's allowed the country to be overrun with illegals. There's over 2.5 million of them now in, many more millions to come between now and 2024, and certainly in the four years after if he wins. Another thing in the news, this is something a little closer to my heart. Ovidio Guzman, 
the son of my client, Joaquin Guzman El Chapo, was arrested by Mexican authorities on Thursday, and Mexico prepared to extradite uh, him to the United States to face charges here. And for transparency purposes, I suppose I, I should say that I've represented a video Guzman uh, in the past, uh, as well as in connection with his criminal charges here in America. So I do have some personal involvement in this. Now, his arrest last week came, uh, comes just days before there's a summit in New York City this week with the Mexican President Lopez Obrador and Joe Biden and Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau. This comes three years after a video was arrested in Mexico, but was released by AMLO. That's uh, what he's called, Lopez Obrador, in Mexico. He was released because uh, AMLO was concerned about violence in Mexico from the arrest. And at the time, AMLO said that the strategy would be hugs, not bullets, aimed to tackle violent crime uh, at its roots by fighting poverty and inequality and social programs rather than with an army. Now, a year later in 2020, former Mexican Defense Minister General Salvador Cienfuegos was arrested in L.A. on charges that he conspired to protect drug traffickers in Mexico whose drugs reached America. So he was charged in America. That was a pretty big move by the American government. Everybody knows how crooked the Mexican government is when it comes to the cartels. I cross-examined some cooperators in the Chapo Guzman case one of them, Alex Cifuentes, admitted that a former president of Mexico was bribed with $100 million by the cartels. That was a government's witness. I didn't say that. He said it. Naturally, the former president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto, denied that he was on the take and threatened to sue me for defamation, which was hilarious at the time. And looking back, it's still pretty funny. That never happened, of course. He didn't sue me for obvious reasons. <coughs> I think we both know. And a few months after Chapo was convicted, the public security secretary of another former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, was arrested in the United States on charges that he allowed the Sinaloa cartel to operate in exchange for multi-million dollar bribes. So it's clear that the American government agreed with me when I said that during the trial, that the Mexican government was completely crooked and in bed with drug dealers. But when the U.S. forces arrested General Cienfuegos in Los Angeles in 2020, it was thought that the case would go further in revealing the really high-level corruption in the Mexican government in connection with their dealings with the drug cartels. A month later, however, the Trump administration, I mean, I suppose you could call it the Trump administration, it was, it was their, uh, uh, it was his attorney general, released Cienfuegos and dropped the charges after uh, the Mexican president, AMLO, promised to investigate Cienfuegos. That's what he said publicly. Less than two months after he was returned to Mexico, naturally, Mexican prosecutors exonerated Cienfuegos after a bullshit investigation, revealing clearly how the Mexican military was untouchable in the drug war. I mean, they're crooked. They're part of this. AMLO uh, is crooked himself and attacked the American DEA, claiming that they fabricated the charges against Cienfuegos, which is comical. Now it's two years later when AMLO needs to pretend that he's tough on the drug trade again in advance of his summit with Trudeau and Biden. He has a video Guzman arrested, even though the cartel, it's widely speculated, continues to pay off the higher ups in the Mexican government to ensure that hugs and not bullets remain the country's strategy. 
I'll say now in 2023 what I said in 2019. It's not changing. It hasn't changed. It probably never will change. The Mexican people have long deserved an honest government, not one in bed with drug dealers. But that day has not come yet. What a surprise. Now, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my radio career, how I got into it, how I got out of it. Um, you know, some of this stuff is interesting. For a few years, if you're a listener to the podcast, you may know that I did a Monday morning radio interview on WOR in New York City on the Len Berman and Michael Riedel morning show. It's a show that features one conservative host in Riedel and one liberal uh, host in Berman, and it's a standard formula for talk radio, and it's a, it's a good show, and WOR is a conservative station in New York City, which competes against WABC, you know, for listeners. Both stations use mostly nationally syndicated hosts throughout the day, but their morning shows are local and they're live. Len, as I said, is the liberal half of the show, and sometimes we agreed on issues and sometimes we didn't. I hate Donald Trump. I'm pro-choice. I'm for gay marriage. I'm for some gun control. Not exactly far-right talking points. I'm a Republican, but I consider myself a moderate on many issues, And but I am a hawk when it comes to national defense and terrorism, about as far right wing as you're going to get. And my time at WOR ended after a blowout argument on air about all of, of all things, the COVID vaccine. I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm a critic of it. it. It was experimental. We were told that it would end COVID, and it didn't. And while I believe the vaccine saved lives, I, I believe that. It also was the product of a lie. So it's really hard to take it seriously when, again, we were told, take this vaccine and COVID ends forever. And now it comes out that there are real side effects, some deadly, which are documented all over the Internet, including on the CDC's own website. Naturally, I told this easily verifiable truth on air, but a liberal refused to let it be said on air because it's kind of their religion, uh, the vaccine. And this is at a time when White House administrators are directing Facebook to censor conservative voices. You've got the FBI ordering Twitter to terminate conservative accounts, to stop any criticism of the COVID vaccine, to stop any discussion of the Hunter Biden laptop, even to the point of 51 national security officers, including former heads of the CIA, claiming that the laptop didn't even exist, that it was fake that it was a Russian psychological operation. It's a total lie. So the last thing I'm going to do is be shut down about the real side effects of the COVID vaccine by an old dishonest sportscaster who works in his bathrobe. But enough of that. And that brings me back to when I started doing radio and why I did it for so many years. Now, as I've talked about on the podcast previously, it all started when I cross-examined a radio host, Curtis Sliwa, during the John Gotti Jr. trial in 2005. And I've discussed this before. I co-hosted three shows in a row, three days in a row with Curtis, just six months or so after the Gotti trial. And it was very weird. I was so much in my comfort zone when I cross-examined him, I just completely humiliated him. And it wasn't enough just to make my points I abused the guy on the stand. It was very personal. I would walk up to the witness stand. I had forgotten this and remembered it this morning right before I started talking to you. I would walk up to the witness stand with a document for Curtis to review, and then I would ask him questions. And this happened a lot during the cross. 
And sometimes the document was 10 pages long. Usually I highlighted the areas that I wanted him to read. I thought it was self-evident that I'm handing him a document with highlighting and I asked him to take a look at it. Sometimes he would say in a low voice, because, you know, we were in open court, he would say, which part would you like me to read? And I knew when I knew that the jury couldn't hear that, and I was just handing it to him, I just turned around, I looked at him, blank face, turned around, put my back towards him, I just walked back to my podium, leaving him there uncomfortable and confused. I mean, it was really like petty, stupid bullshit, but... You know, he made it very personal, as I'll get into in a little bit. So I felt, you know, look, I might as well have some fun with the guy. Anything really to make him uncomfortable. And he was in a suit uh, instead of his the stupid red uh, beret and that stupid red sateen jacket. And, and I'm calling it sateen and not satin because that's how he pronounces it on air. So he was already a fish out of water. He was very uncomfortable. And of course, I, you know, being a, a, a sadist, I felt the need to make it worse for him. Now, I recognized after the cross that the whole buildup to it by him, him talking about it on air like it was Ali versus Frazier and how he had to flee to Japan after, the, after Gotti was indicted on charges of attempting to kill him, you know, for his own safety. He was speaking about the case every day on the radio. It was all an act to gin up publicity for himself. I mean, that was obvious. He talked about me constantly on his radio show, and, and I wasn't annoyed. I was more like puzzled, I would say. He didn't know me at all, but he's trashing me every single day. And listen, this is the most listened-to talk radio station in the world, you know, WABC in New York at the time. So it was a little weird for me, and I didn't take it personally, even though he was trashing me every single day, because it was done in such a cartoonish way, like he'd make fun of the fact that I was from New Jersey, and it didn't seem like he was angry or sincere. It was more like when you watch like WWWF wrestlers talking about their opponents on air. It was, it was funny to me. I remember once being in a cab and a client called me on my cell and said to me, turn on WABC, Curtis is talking about you again. And I asked the, uh, the cabbie uh, to turn it to uh, 77. And sure enough, uh, Curtis is making fun of me about, again, my Jersey roots. I don't know why that's funny, but it was an odd feeling because I never really was part of the eg- everyday, you know, people weren't talking about me every day in public. So it was a little, a little weird. But I did recognize how important he was as a witness in the government's case, even though he wasn't anyone who had any inside information on my client, John A. Gotti. He wasn't a mafia member becoming a turncoat, an associate, somebody who had conspired with John and now was a rat. He was just a victim. He was an eyewitness, but he was the face of the case publicly. The trial really became John Gotti versus Curtis Lewa of the Guardian Angels. And that's the vigilante uh, group uh, that uh, was created by Curtis in the 70s and sort of tried to clean up some of the worst um, crime-infested areas in New York City. It was a different New York City back then, although it's getting pretty close to that now with uh, Mayor and the club. And, and I knew, though, that if I destroyed Curtis's credibility, that I'd destroy the face of the government's case. So all the extra work I did in preparation for that case for that cross was for that purpose, to cut the head off and then the body would wither. 
But anyway, I digress. Uh, Back to the radio. It it was such an ugly and abusive cross that when I was asked to co-host shows with him uh, afterwards, I wasn't really comfortable with it at first. I mean, I had won our battle, I I suppose, but how could this guy even look at me? It was so ugly. Like, I I wasn't – I was embarrassed for him. I had personally attacked him so badly. And after the trial ended, I recalled that I had done a TV show with him. We were both um, being interviewed on the Dan Abrams show. It was when he had a daily show on I don't know, CNN or MSNBC. Each of us were interviewed at the same time from different rooms in the studio. But when I went to the green room, and that's the pre-interview room for all the show's guests for the day, they go in there and there's food and there's some stuff to drink and just sit on your ass until they bring you in uh, for the interview. When I went to the green room, there he was. And I hadn't seen him since I had cross-examined him, and I I felt mortified uh, to have to see him there. I was embarrassed for him. It was awful. I was so immature in uh, my cross. And, you know, I really behaved like an ignoramus, but, you know, he deserved it. So, you know, sorry. But he couldn't have been uh, more nice, couldn't have been more polite to me that day. And and it made me realize that this whole fake hatred that he had towards me from the radio show that was completely an act which it was, as I learned. So we made nice, and we then got onto the radio. We then got onto the TV show, the Abrams show that day, a few minutes later, and he starts becoming a cartoon character again. He's attacking me and talking about how he may have won the battle, but not the war, and he's doing his moolah schmoolah and mobsters choking on their lobsters, bullshit, all the radio shtick. And I was shocked. And Naturally, uh, me being me, I abused them some more on air and told them that the reason we had won the case was because he was such an awful witness and how he had made me so much money. Anyways, back to the radio shows that I did with him at the very beginning in March of 2006. I walked into the studio and now I was no longer in charge. Now I was the neophyte. I was the guy on the stand and it was a little bit unnerving. I was anxious, I would say. I'm going to be doing a show for uh, hours a day with a guy who's been on talk radio for decades, and I had never been on talk radio. And to his great credit, he didn't take advantage of me. He didn't attack me. It was all a shtick before, as I said. He genuinely cared about quality radio, period. That's all he cared about. He really cared about nothing else other than his own uh, self-promotion, I suppose, which was like, you know, everything to him. But what I quickly realized with talk radio was that everyone who worked in it for a job, when they needed the money, like their job, they were all playing it safe. Everyone was afraid to really speak their minds as it might cost them this cushy job. I mean, what a great job. You talk on the radio and you get paid. And then, of course, they'd have to find something else to do. And that's not so easy when you don't have any other talent. So they all pulled their punches, all the hosts. Everything was designed to not offend anyone. And it just was too much. I mean, there'd be some aggressive moments, but immediate pullbacks. And unless you were Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh or someone really big on the radio, even in the biggest radio market in the world, in New York City, to me, the radio hosts were just pathetic cowards, which of course was exactly the opposite of the reason I wanted to do talk radio. I had all these strong opinions, certainly not just about the law, and I wanted to blast them out for the world to hear. They were offensive. I knew that I was offensive at times. I knew that I was very politically incorrect. 
But when I hear Curtis talking about, you know, again, mobsters choking on their lobsters and the shmula moolah, and he's doing the same shtick in 2006 that when I was reviewing radio shows from 1993 in preparation for the trial, it's the same shit. It's the same stupid jokes. They weren't funny then. They weren't funny now. And now it's 2020, whatever it is, 2023. And he's still doing the same shit. So it was it was clear to me that my radio style, whatever it was going to be, was not going to be very well received by the powers that be inside a radio station. But there was no other reason for me to do talk radio. I felt that my opinions were important enough and no one was, was saying these things. And I used the radio for that purpose. I didn't need it for personal gain. I didn't need it for money. I got very few cases from doing radio. If anything, I thought that it hurt my career because any lawyer that was competing against me for a case could tell the potential client, how do you hire this guy? He's on the radio every day. And it's true. If you're on the radio every day and you're a lawyer, your, your focus isn't in the right place. You're, you know, it's not, it's not right. I don't think, I mean, unless you're just willing to work all the time, like I was, I made up for it, but I use the radio to get important things out for me. I explained in 2006 when I started that I left liberalism behind and why I changed parties. And now granted, the Democrats in the 2000 period were not the far left cowardly scumbags that they are today. I was always a hawk, as I said, when it came to Muslim terror. And I explained on air how after 9-11, I felt that one party the Republicans cared about America and the Democrats mainly seemed to be rooting for the terrorists in Iraq during that war in order really just solely to get power in America, that if we screwed up the war, they'd be able to win votes and win elections in America. If we failed, uh, then they would succeed. And that just rubbed me the wrong way. I could see the way the Democrats were moving, where they were moving toward, and I wanted nothing to do with a party that was against personal responsibility, was already showing the, the signs of wokeism. It was all about affirmative action. And it, they also made very clear they hated Israel, which is really just the code word for hating Jews. And I could see the, the coming storm clouds, and I got out of it around 9-11. I wanted, again, to talk about the dangers of affirmative action and how liberalism was just destroying the country and how they were embracing terrorists. And then, of course, Obama ran, and I remember begging the listeners on the air, not that I needed to beg WABC listeners, that if this guy gets elected in 20 years, you won't recognize America because he's so far left and he's hiding it so well. And there were so many whites that would vote for him out of, you know, their the liberal white guilt. Look, oh, look at me. I'm not a racist. I voted for the black man. You know, that's the Democratic mentality at the time. So I remember begging uh, people not to do it. But it was important for me to get all this out in public because nobody else was doing it. And everybody else on radio, it seemed, all they would do would have these like this forced laughter bullshit. And it, it drove me nuts. It, it bothered me in third grade, I remember, you know, watching a, uh, a film, a science film when something, you know, people, one kid thought was silly. The whole class started laughing hysterically. They were in hysterics, third grade. I don't know, we were eight years old, and they're hysterically laughing about something that wasn't funny. I'm the only kid in the class not laughing. And it bothered me at age 40 as well. It was the same thing, like the guffaws. Like, you know what a guffaw is? Look it up. 
just this, their diaphragms were, were, were being so far compressed. They could barely, you know, not pass out from laughing so hard. It was all fake. And I hated it. I hated it. I also got to pick the bumper music for all my shows, all the music that would take the show in and out of a break. And it was awesome for me getting my favorite music onto the New York airwaves. I remember at the beginning of one, after a break, we came back on, I played like the entire Devo song, Mongoloid, for the listeners. And the, the lyrics are so politically incorrect. I mean, shockingly, this was years ago. This was like 2007 or so. But I wanted the song to get out there. I really liked it. I didn't care. I mean, that's, that's sort of my mentality. The opening song I used whenever I hosted was Elvis Costello's uh, Chelsea, which was just such a great song. Sometimes I used a Warren Zevon song, Splendid Isolation. Zevon was a genius, and it meant a lot uh, to me to play his music for the masses. I also could interview anyone I wanted. I mean, it was great. All I had to do was ask, and, and Frank Morano, the program director, would get that person for me. I mean, Frank was like a, a genius with radio stuff like this, and it was so incredible to have that opportunity. I just wanted to meet these people, even if it was on air, and I wasn't in the same room with them, but I couldn't have cared less about the interview itself. I just wanted to talk to them, and Frank would always get me anybody I wanted. I don't think he failed uh, one single time. And I have to digress again. Uh, I remember this has got to be 2008. I was at my kid's preschool in the Upper East Side. I don't know if I've told this story before. If I have, I apologize. But, you know, I'm getting older. And Jim Bouton, uh, the great baseball player, former Yankee, wrote the greatest baseball book and one of the greatest books of all time called Ball Four. Uh, the best, the funniest book. And I, I'm in the preschool and I see him walking around during Grandparents' Day, and he was unrecognizable. I was certain I was the only one crazy enough to recognize him because he was now 70, and he was so much different looking than he was when he played baseball and afterwards when he was a, sort of a fixture in New York City in the 70s. You know, it wasn't really that anybody knew what ball four was. Unless you're a real baseball fan, you wouldn't know what it was in 2008. But I didn't approach him. I wanted to so badly. But, you know, he's with his grandkids. I let him be. But as soon as I got home, I found his website. He was hawking some some shit on on the line. I emailed him and told him, you know, who I was, that I was doing a talk radio for Fox. Fox News had a, a radio, talk radio, and I would fill in for them as well because I was so good on WABC. I started getting calls from other uh, networks as well. And I told him I was doing a show the following week. Would he join me on the show for an interview? The guy responded and he was great. I told him you could plug anything you want. I don't know whatever he's doing. I think he was writing a turning ball four into a Broadway show at the time. He could talk about that. The guy wrote back almost immediately and was so enthusiastic. And being able to interview him on air, and I've got the, the CD of that show somewhere, it was one of the highlights of my life, for real. I still look back on that. It's 15 years ago or so. And talking to Jim Bouton and laughing about the book ball four, my God, how lucky I was. The power of radio in New York City was so great that I could, you know, get so many people to listen to me. It just was so great. And as I said, Jim Bowden, it was just so amazing. And I still, I get tingles down my leg uh, like Chris Matthews when I think about how great that was. And, and I was good at radio naturally because I'm good on my feet as a lawyer. Radio wasn't something I needed to be trained to do. I just 
went on air and went bonkers. Whatever came into my head, I talked about. Naturally, of course, the program director of WABC tried to rein me in nearly after every single show. I was called into his office and told, you can't say this, you can't say that. Did you really say this? You can't do that. You know you can't do that. And he was right most of the times. I mean, I, I knew that I went too far. too far. Even if I was right, I didn't care. I did some bad things I know that I shouldn't have done. But it was never out of malice. Not that that makes a difference. Uh, your intent doesn't make a difference when you say something bad on the radio. We did a show in which um, the topic, I remember, was there was a far-left black New York City councilman, like a real bomb thrower. I don't remember who it was. It wasn't Charles Barron. Just, and he had said the most extremely anti-American black nationalistic views, anti-Semitic stuff. And I described him as an unwashed savage on air. And I, and I didn't mean it as racist at all. I just felt that the guy was a savage and I got in such trouble for that. Did you say unwashed savage on air? And there were sexual innuendos I would make and I was constantly being criticized. And, you know, it happened like literally every day, it seemed. I just didn't care because to me, I was playing with house money. I didn't need this gig. So I didn't care if they fired me. So if I'm going to do it, why not just go balls out crazy thinking, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? They'll fire me. So what? Who cares? So every day was like my last show. And I just, you know, I went pretty nuts. You know, the listeners liked it because I was conservative. I had some strong points that people weren't willing to say, and it was a conservative radio station, so naturally they liked it. And I filled in more many days a month uh, for oftentimes five hours uh, for shows, five hours at a time. And oftentimes I was completely by myself for five hours in the studio. And the show would start at 5 a.m. and it would go till 10. And I remember one time taking an Ambien instead of a Lipitor. You know, they're both white pills. And I had to wake up three hours later to do that 5 a.m. show. And I was completely a zombie when the alarm went off. It's a miracle that I didn't sleep through it. I think I might have been late a few minutes. And they had to start the show with, with Frank or whoever the producer. I guess it was Frank. And I remember not – I was completely out of it at the beginning of the show. I didn't remember any of it. And Frank, who really is – and not that he's a, a producer anymore. He's not. He's his own talent in his own right now. He was such a fantastic producer. He was the only one who noticed or even cared, I suppose. And I was really unhinged until I woke up properly on the air. Again, I don't even know what I was saying. I'd love to hear that show now. And I really loved radio, um, not just in hearing my own voice, because lawyers, of course, naturally want to hear their own voice, but I could use it to help me in trials. I would have an upcoming trial and I would talk about the issues of the case. I would talk about the case on air, knowing that I had potential jurors that were going to be in the, the jury pool. They were listening to me, and I could influence the result of that trial. It was amazing to me that whenever there would be um, at the beginning of voir dire, where you pick a jury, uh, the judge would say to the crowd of potential jurors, does anybody know um, you know, all the witnesses, the names would be listed and the names of the lawyers. And every time there would be somebody's hand would raise and say, and I listened to him on the radio. And I remember, you know, and, and it was a question about whether they should be disqualified at that point. And one time uh, a juror, a potential juror claimed that she was a fan, raised her hand and said, you know, I love him on the radio, so I can't be fair. And we had a break and I walk into the hallway and I see her there. And I say to her, why did, why did you say that? 
why don't you stay on the panel? You would have given me an acquittal. Hey, what are you doing? And she says, oh, no, no, I was going to convict him. <laughs> and we hadn't even had the opening statement yet. You know, this is why sometimes you need to stay away from conservative jurors. Now, when Curtis and Frank left WABC to join a different station, AM 970, The Apple, I went with them and they gave me my own regular show on Saturdays and I loved it. I, I wasn't a fill-in host anymore, even though I had filled in, you know, multiple times a week even, but I was thrilled to have my own show. I could use the show for serious stuff. I talked about radical Islam and it's creeping into American society. It was a big issue to me, Iran and its terrorism that was spreading throughout the globe and... I think I talked about how um, in 2007, I opened up the New York Times on the way back from Brazil to visit a potential client, and I see my quote about bombing Iran in the New York Times. That was in November of 2007. But I was very hypersensitive to the whole radical Islam thing, and I'll explain why. I mean, it's really not that hard to understand, I suppose. I grew up listening to my grandparents in the early 70s discussing the Holocaust in hushed tones. Much of their families were killed in the Holocaust, and in the early 70s, it was just 25 years since the concentration camps had been liberated, so it was really real. And I was like seven years old. It wasn't like some faraway historical event, the Holocaust, like maybe people think of it now. In 1971, 72, it was, it was there. It was still there. And for that reason, I became really feverishly pro-Israel. Israel was the only place that Jews could go and be safe. And it's not like I'm religious. I'm not. But it was a, a nationalistic feeling. And, and many of my relatives who escaped the Holocaust, they fled to Israel and they still live there today. Arab nations, naturally, being Arabs, they declared war on Israel from day one. And as these uh, horrible Arab nations or terror states, none of them were democracies, they hated America as much as they hated Israel. And it became hugely important to me Israel's continued existence. If Israel went down, the Muslim extremists would take over the Middle East completely. There'd be no bulwark there to stop them. And, you know, back then they were called Arabs. They weren't called Muslims or anything else. <clears throat> and they'd be coming for America next. I mean, I thought it was pretty obvious. So when the Arabs attacked Israel during the holiest of Jewish holidays, Yom Kippur in 1973, it felt like another Holocaust could happen. But as they did in the Six-Day War of 1967, which actually began on my birthday, Israel turned the savages back and would have crushed the Egyptian army if not for America pushing for a ceasefire so as not to inflame relations with the Soviet Union, which had been backing the Arabs. But it was a lesson to me also back then when I was a kid, that this double standard involving Israel. The Arabs attacked on Israel's holiest day, thinking Israel wouldn't be prepared to defend itself on such an important day. Today, if, if Israel kills a Palestinian terrorist who's knifing somebody during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, the whole world freaks out. Never mind that Ramadan is naturally the month when Muslim terrorists commit the most terror acts. But it's just the double standard has been there since the beginning. So radical Islam and, and warning about it became important to me on air because I had an outlet now that people had to listen to me. I mean, I suppose they could turn the dial off, but they didn't. So I would go nuts on radical Islam anytime I could. I went after the Palestinians and their terrorist leaders. It made no sense to me that Democrats supported them. 
I mean, they were backed by Iran, which had killed Americans. They had killed Americans themselves, including the Democrats' a great hero, Bobby Kennedy. A Palestinian killed Bobby Kennedy. They celebrated on 9-11, the Palestinians, yet nothing could shake the Jew hate from Democrats hard enough to get them to hate the very people who hated America. It just didn't make any sense. I mean, the Palestinians hated America, they hated the Democrats, and yet still the Democrats supported them, in my mind, just because of the you know overarching Jew hate that was spreading throughout the party. Now, naturally, on the radio, my commentaries would cause numerous threats from radical Muslims in New York or all over. I don't know where they were threatening from. Because, of course, you can't expect them to have any kind of self-control when they're being criticized. Another double standard. You can criticize anybody else. You criticize radical Islam, and they cut your fucking head off. If you don't believe me, ask the dead people at Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical magazine that dared um, to make fun of the Prophet Muhammad. You know, they all got shot up and killed by uh, Al-Qaeda. And I remember being on air one time, and during that period, during Charlie Hebdo, when that massacre occurred— I drew a picture of Muhammad as a dog on air. Curtis was losing his mind, and I tore it up and crumpled it and threw it up in the air because I wanted to, you know, say, look, we're not afraid of them. I'm not going to change my behavior in this country. It's not like I'm, I'm going to a foreign country and I have to respect somebody's religion there. This is America. We've got free speech. We've got freedom of religion. And I'm not going to change my behavior just because of some threats from maniacs. And at the time, Curtis and I did a daily radio show. This was 2011 through 2013. It was from 5 to 7 p.m. And it was a very popular the drive uh, afternoon drive time slot. And as sort of, uh, you know, something to make the show more popular, we did it from the ground floor behind the giant window of the Hotel Pennsylvania on 7th Avenue in New York City, right by Madison Square Garden. It was a very heavily trafficked area. <clears throat> People would walk by and they'd see us in front of a banner of the radio show and we'd be doing the show live every day. Of course, after doing it for a bit of time there, the threats on my life were so frequent that the station moved our radio show to an interior office on the sixth floor of the hotel so that, you know, we wouldn't get killed or I wouldn't get killed. And how I came about doing the Daily Show with Curtis is a funny story and very typical of me. He was doing the morning show on the radio station as well, and then doing the afternoon drive show with a host. I mean, Curtis was on, on the radio, like, seemed 24 hours a day. The host he was doing the afternoon show was a Latino, Latinx, Latinx, a journalist. It wasn't, Latinx didn't exist back then. He was just a plain Latino. Gerson Barrero. He wrote for one of those Hispanic, I don't know if it was El Dia, La Dia, El Diario, who the fuck? I don't know. I don't know. But it was something, and that's what he uh, did. And he was on TV a lot. And he was very far left. And he seemed like a nice enough guy. But one time he made a comment on air. I don't know how I heard it that I, I thought was too far over the line about Israel. And you know what? Fuck you, man. You're going to be on radio talking shit about Israel? Well, guess what? I'm on the same station. So during my Saturday show, I would just torture this guy and talk about him constantly. I talked about the Puerto Rican Day Parade in New York City 
and it consisted mainly of Puerto Ricans in dented cars. They're either one of two colors or either prime or gray or prime or red. And they're driving down Fifth Avenue and now people are boarding up their stores with wood so that they don't get their windows broken. The people are hiding underneath their beds on Puerto Rican Day Parade Day because they don't want to get urinated on by the Puerto Ricans who are all walking around with their shirts off, their bellies hanging over. I mean, horrible stuff I said. I mean, it was ridiculous. But it was funny, and it was, of course, true. That was a part of the problem. It was always true. And I would always bring up Gerson and, you know, him being at the parade. And he would complain during the Daily Show that he had with Curtis that he heard I was going after him. And then I remember one time walking into the studio on a Saturday and going like this. And I would remark that it smelled like urine inside the studio. And I realized, and I said that it was uh, Gerson the person, that's what I called him, uh, Gerson the person, had pretended that he was at the Puerto Rican Day Parade and had urinated in the corner of the studio. Eventually, Gerson the person quit. I don't remember. He got into some tizzy. I don't, I don't think it was about me. I wished it was. I don't think it was. But he quit the show, and the station manager asked me to fill in for him on the Daily Show with Curtis, and I jumped at the chance. Not because I wanted to do the show, but because I didn't want Gerson, the person, to have the spot. <clears throat> as soon as he was out, I wanted to come back in. I figured the listeners would like me better. And when Gerson, the person, decided that he wanted to come back, it would be too late. That's the kind of person, the kind of petty, immature person I am. And that's how I really am today, is I want the offer. I want the opportunity. I don't necessarily want what you're offering me, but I want that offer. And uh, I'm, that's how I am. I still am. They, uh, in that vein, they offered me the show full time. I decided to do it again. Um, and I was popular on the show. Uh, I, it was, you know, fun for me. I got to do it every day after my uh, day of being a lawyer. I was never prepared, but I didn't have to be prepared. I just walk in cold and, and it was fine. And I was very popular on the show. And then the powers in the office, in the, uh, excuse me, in the radio station, they offered me Curtis's show surreptitiously while he's doing it every day they wanted me to replace him as the show wasn't doing well what what a big shock i mean it's the same you know stale boring radio shtick that he'd been doing for a hundred years and people were turning the dial i was frankly amazed that anybody listened to him at all i didn't take the the daily show in the morning because then i would have two daily shows and i'd become curtis and I asked about the money and I laughed. It was so low compared to what I was making as a lawyer. And I realized, you know what? You're really fucking up your legal career. You can't do any more radio. It's, it's just so narcissistic and stupid. It's not helping you with what matters, which is what got you to this radio show, which was success as a lawyer. I needed to calm down. So I didn't take the morning show. And you know, to my credit, and I don't give myself credit all the time because I make so many dumb mistakes, but I told Curtis. I was loyal to him. He had been fair to me, I thought, by letting me be on his radio show. He was a popular radio host after the Gotti trial, after I humiliated him. And I told him, I said, look, they're trying to replace you here. And uh, I thought that was the loyal thing to do, which, of course, Curtis is the most disloyal person on the planet. But to me, it felt like it was the right thing to do. And during the daily, now I'm on daily um, from five to seven, five days a week, I was constantly being reprimanded for talking about Muslim terror, talking about something politically incorrect. But sitting next to Curtis, in my mind, what, what choice did I have but to be outrageous? I'd have fallen asleep otherwise. 
He was constantly complaining about me um, to uh, the program director behind my back. He was terrified that we'd be thrown off radio due to my big mouth. And he really needed the paycheck and, and paycheck. He had like, I don't know, seven ex-wives and like 40 kids. So I was constantly, and he had like, I don't know, 112 cats. I was constantly being taken to lunch and lectured, lectured, lectured. And I ignored all the complaints, all the reprimands. I mean, I'm being lectured by some moron fucking program director. I'm one of the top criminal defense lawyers in the country. And some putz program director is going to tell me that I got to change my behavior? Fuck you. Why do the radio if I was going to become some castrated clown and having to force out those fake laughs? <laughs> Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. So I ignored it. I remember once on the radio, we were talking, one of the, one of the co-hosts that was on with me was talking about, there's another Jeffrey Lickman lawyer in New York, and he threatened to sue the station when I was, was, when I was on WABC. I digress again. His law firm advertised in the subways. He was a personal injury lawyer. They had a Hispanic woman in the ads named Margarita in an effort to appeal to the, I suppose, Spanish-speaking uh, people that rode the subway, and their number was 1-800-MARGARITA. It was ridiculous, and she's extolling the virtues of uh, their personal injury practice, and this was like TV commercials. So I discussed on air when I was younger, people thought that he was me and I was him, even though he was much older than me and he weighed like 200 pounds more than me, I thought, at least what I could tell. And I described him as an ambulance chaser on air, and he heard it somehow, somehow, because when you're in the station, when you're in the studio, you don't realize that there are are tens of thousands, if not more people listening in New York City every day. And he threatened to sue. And it was kind of funny to me because I didn't care. And the program director tells me about it and he shows me the letter. And the whole thing was so damn funny. And he says to me, you got to apologize on air. And I'm like, I'm not apologizing to this fucking guy. And I'm like, he is an ambulance chaser. I know, but you have to apologize. Or we're going to get sued. I'm like, do you really think this guy wants to have a public lawsuit Jeffrey Lickman versus Jeffrey Lickman because I called him an ambulance chaser because he advertises in the subway. And again, I knew nothing about his practice. I just knew that he advertised in the subway. So to me, you know, anyway, the station was terrified. So they wrote out an apology and I read it. But of course, naturally, I started making fun of him again during the apology. And I, I just couldn't help myself. And I felt bad about it after because I'm sure he's a decent guy and I'm, and I'm sure he's a very good lawyer. It's a, it's a, a well-known law firm uh, in New York and he wouldn't have a good law firm if he wasn't a good lawyer. So I'm sure, and plus he has my name. So naturally he's a good lawyer. Um, and I've never spoken to him. I never did then and still haven't now. But the whole thing was just so stupid for me to even believe that they were asking me to apologize. But this was and is the state of talk radio. They're just constant. They, they live in terror of being you know, reprimanded or being fired or somebody above you, which is why to young people, I would say, don't work for somebody else. Do it at the beginning until you can figure this out. Anytime you work for somebody else, I don't care if it's in a big law firm, you still have to answer to somebody and you're still not your own man. And frankly, we're grownups here. It's enough. Make your own decisions for yourself. Don't have some putts from some committee telling you what clients you can and can't take and all the rest of that. Anyway, so what finally ended my time with Curtis on the afternoon radio show was my daring to discuss the reason why so many Muslim countries have a problem with pedophilia. It's because they follow the Quran so faithfully 
And Muhammad, their prophet, married a six-year-old, Aisha, and had sex with her when she was nine. And while there may, you know, that may have been tolerated 1,500 years ago, it's kind of bad in modern times. And Curtis lost his mind. He was trying to think of any excuses for Muslims defending them, which to me was an obvious fact, even if it was an uncomfortable thing to say on air. I even had a college professor join me on the show and agree to all this, a professor for Middle Eastern Studies. Imagine that, a, prof- a professor, some crazy fucking professor, crazy enough to say these things publicly. But she did. The program director started calling me during the show, screaming at me, telling me, that he was ending the show right then in the middle of the show. And they did. They just stopped the show. They went to commercials or infomercials, whatever the hell it was, for the last 15 minutes at the end. Curtis, of course, couldn't confront me to my face, so he just, like, ran away. I didn't see him. And it would have, But I knew that during every break, he was calling management to complain about me. He was so terrified at the prospect of having to get a real job if, if we got fired, I suppose. And I was told the next day that I could only come back if I apologized on air, which I just thought was incredible. They were screaming at me. The program director was screaming at me on the phone. I'm like a grown man. I'm one of the top trial lawyers in New York, and I'm getting screamed at by some fucking putts. It was, it, I was laughing in his face. I told him, go fuck yourself. There's no chance I'm apologizing. And that was the end of my daily radio career back in 2013, which was fine. I mean, I really wanted to quit. And I figured, you know, this was a way I thought this might do it. And, and I was right. It was time to focus on the law. And, and I did. It was been 10 years since then. And it was uh, the smartest thing, one of the smartest things I've ever done. I've done many radio interviews uh, since then, but it wasn't until I started doing weekly radio hits on WOR that I did anything steady. And I was still very blunt, uh, very dangerous on air all these years later, because why else do it if you're not going to be out there? Why waste your time on boring stuff that everybody expects? Again, I didn't care if I was terminated. It, it makes it a lot easier to do a job, anything, if you're not afraid of being fired. So over the past couple of weeks, the UN Security Council had an emergency discussion about Israel again. Iran is, and you're saying, why? What is this guy talking about? He's digressing again. Iran is shooting protesters in the street. They're shooting women. They're shooting children. They're executing innocent people days after they're arrested and giving them sham trials. They're purposely shooting protesters in the face and genitals. China's locked up people into their homes, sealed the door shut to prevent them from leaving due to COVID concerns. They've got 2 million Muslims in concentration camps because they don't want a Muslim terror problem. Guess who demanded that the UN needed an emergency discussion about Israel? It's China, it's Jordan, the Palestinians. These are like terror states, places where there are like zero human rights, just dictators. And what does America do? Joe Biden's administration comes out publicly against Israel. And this is why, because a member of Israel's government went to an area of Israeli land called the Temple Mount. It's the holiest site in all of Judaism because there are two temples that were, the first two temples in Judaism that were were created there, left there. He walked around for 13 minutes, and it's something that Jews have been doing since 1967 when Israel recaptured the area in the Six-Day War. But because Muslims can't bear for anyone other than Muslims to be able to pray in the area, 
There's a mosque there too, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They threaten terrorism. They threaten to open the gates of hell. That's a very popular thing that the Palestinians say. The gates of hell will open if you don't do what we say. <clears throat> Naturally, the world gets on its knees for the Muslim terrorists because they're afraid of the terrorism. Never mind that the mosque is peed on, that someone was arrested, a Muslim, for peeing on the mosque. Never mind that they store their weapons to be used against Israelis inside their holy mosque. Joe Biden had the balls to criticize Israel for daring to let one of its citizens walk around there? You think that doesn't increase anti-Semitic attacks on Jews when the president of the U.S. is siding with terrorists? It happened in 2000 and 2016 with Obama, and it's happening again with Biden and Democrats now. So when I'm on the radio, when I'm on WOR, I mean, this is really a long wind-up to this story. If you're a Democrat and a Jew, to me, you're a moron. You're self-loathing, which to me is worse than being a terrorist. So if I'm arguing with a self-loathing Jew on air, there's a high probability I'm going to abuse him and a high probability that I won't apologize it, apologize for it afterward. And here we are. That's why I'm not on WR Radio anymore. That's why I have a podcast. It's all me, free as a bird. No one can tell me to stop. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can hear me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can email me at beyondthelegallimit.com, and I'll actually respond. Thanks for listening. See you next week.